0: One other announcement that um, we need to keep in mind is that, mark this on your calendars, on January 13th through the 17th, actually, there will be, 16th, 13th through 16th, there will be a pastor's conference. Schaefer Seminary is putting on a, uh, a regional pastor's conference, uh, North Stonington Bible Church and is going to co-host that with us. And we will have some meetings here and some meetings over there. We haven't decided when uh, it will be, where just yet. But we're going to need some volunteers, some ladies to volunteer to probably bake some things. And and you can talk to uh, Sue Regal; she'll be uh, organizing that. And um, to help out, the men will be uh, having a break in the morning, and then they'll have lunch uh, probably at North Stonington, since they have a better kitchen than than we do. The uh, so we'll be well. It's just hard to have 40 or 50 people here. To we don't quite have the facility for that. But nevertheless, so that that'll be a good time. It'll be a, a time of good instruction. John Nymola, who is the Greek professor and Hebrew professor at Chafer Seminary, will be speaking or five sessions. Uh, Henry Hastings, who's a pastor of of uh, Grace uh, Atlanta Grace. Bible Church will be speaking a couple of sessions. He was here a couple of weeks ago visiting. and um, who else has been? Dr. Thomas Edgar, who's the head of the Greek department at um, uh, Capitol Bible Seminary, will also be speaking in the evening on a very important subject related to understanding the uh, synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark and Luke. So that will be Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights. So, of course, we will not be having our normal type prayer meeting Bible class that week here because we will be involved in that uh, that pastor's conference. But go ahead and mark that on your calendar. Some of you can, may be interested in making the uh, day sessions are designed so that it's not simply uh, for those who are clergy or trained pastors to be there, but also for those who are not. So keep that in mind. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor death nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to uh, make sure we're ready to take in the Word. A few moments of silent prayer to give us an opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together today to study your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, the freedom we continue to have in this nation to uh, study your word, to teach your word, to proclaim the gospel. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation, protect us from our enemies, give wisdom to our leaders, both political and military, to uh, make the right decisions in regard to internal security and protecting us externally through whatever uh, military actions are necessary as we execute this war on terrorism. Father, we pray for us as a church that we would be uh, continually positive to your word, that we would uh, be intent making this a number one priority in our lives, to study your word, to uh, understand it, to apply it in, in our lives. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would uh, make these things clear to us and that we would have the courage and objectivity to apply what we learn into our own lives, we pray this now in Christ's name, Amen. Last time we began our study of the short epistle, Second John. So open your Bibles with me to Second John chapter one. Second John chapter one. This is one of those short epistles that uh, the Apostle John wrote. It is a, in some sense, a restatement of some basic themes that we have seen again and again. We saw them introduced by our Lord in the Upper Room Discourse. They were then developed and commented on by John in First John, and now they're going to be developed again. Now, as I get into this personally and studying this, it is challenging me in some new areas to, to think through some relationships of some of the concepts here and doctrines here to try to help take us as a congregation a little further along the road of understanding these ideas that are here. Uh, last time, I as I've already mentioned, the writer of this epistle is the Apostle John, who identifies himself as the elder in verse 1. Even though he is an apostle, his relationship with this church, as we have seen, is that of pastor. He is an absentee pastor because it is uh, my opinion that... He is writing this from the Isle of Patmos to a congregation that he refers to metaphorically as the Elect Lady. We looked at that last time. There were several options of how that is interpreted, but it seems to me to be a reference to this particular church and her children, that is, the members of that uh, congregation. The purpose for this epistle is derived from examining the key words that are used and the words that are used uh, and, and repeatedly in this in this uh, epistle uh, focuses on the word truth. It's used five times in the first four verses. So if we're going to look at those first four verses, we have to understand what John means by truth. Uh, anytime you have a word used that many times in that short of an, of a uh, context, that narrow of a context, then you have to make sure you understand the concept. Love is used four times in this epistle. The command to walk a certain way, walk in the truth, walk according to his commandments, walk in it, used three times between verses 4 to verse 6. Commandment is also used three times in reference to the commandment to love one another. And then the word abide is used two times. So we see a theme that is developed in this section that is a warning against the Uh, warning to not be taken in by false teaching. Now, when we look at this, it's very typical. You hear many uh, sermons on 2 John that cover it in one lesson or two lessons because uh, I think there's a tendency not to dig very deeply into the significance of what's going on here. Why has God, the Holy Spirit, given us this short epistle? It seems clear that these same ideas are covered in 1 John they're covered in the upper room discourse. Why do we have them here? So we have to answer that question. And that is causing me to spend a lot of times in uh, deep thought and reflection and, and digging through the scriptures and just reflecting on the significance of the doctrine. We are told in, uh, in the Gospel of John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is a key background verse for understanding Second John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We were warned by John that one of the doctrines of these false teachers that were probably some sort of itinerant teachers who were claiming a relationship to the apostles and therefore trying to give themselves a certain amount of credibility, that they were those who did not believe that Jesus had come in the flesh back in First John chapter 2. So John comes back to this theme and states the main purpose here in verse seven for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess or admit or acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist, so this is a repetition of what he says in verse in first John. Now it seems to me that he said if he said it in first John, why do we have? This repetition in Second John, and it's more than simply the fact that that uh, repetition is key to learning. There are significant elements to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and its significance not only for salvation, but also for the spiritual life that I think is just too easily and too quickly glossed over. ...when people come to this particular epistle. So we are going to explore that in a lot of detail, and that has driven me back to read some things that I haven't read in a long time in early church history, reading through the early church fathers and and, uh, as they grappled with the meaning of the hypostatic union. You know, we take these things for granted sometimes, that um, the church has always believed in the undiminished deity and true humanity of Christ... And in one sense, the church has always believed that. It's only in recent times where you had, as a result of 19th century liberal Protestant theology, a rejection of the deity of Christ. But even in the early church, they believed in the deity of Christ. They believed in the humanity of Christ in a sort of naive or unreflected manner. And what I mean by that is that they they weren't analyzing that concept and relating it to other doctrines or trying to figure out, okay, if he's fully God and fully man, how do those two natures relate to each other? How do we express the idea of those two natures? Uh, Is one nature dominant over the other nature? Just how do these tie in? And, And so they held to the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ, but it wasn't until... The Council of uh, Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus uh, that came up in, in uh, the next century, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where these doctrines were really hashed out. And it wasn't that they're invented. See, the liberal, and some people you'll run into, I think uh, I read some absurd statement by Shirley MacLaine in her book Out on a out on a limb years ago that, well, the Council of Nicaea just got rid of a lot of ideas that were in early Christianity, and they imposed this idea of the deity of Christ on the church. And that is a complete misreading, uh, misunderstanding of early church history, because if you go back as early as people such as Clement of Rome, who is a, uh, a pastor in Rome at the end of the first century. So he is pastoring in Rome at the same time John is writing 2nd John. Yet what Clement wrote in 1st and 2nd Clement are not considered scripture. However, they are great testimony to what the church believed at the end of the 1st century. And you have other writings such as a devotional work called The Shepherd of Hermas and, and an epistle by, by uh, allegedly by Barnabas and, and some other writings that took place right at the end of the 1st century and into the 2nd century uh, by people such as Polycarp and Papias who were disciples. They, they actually studied under the Apostle John. And as we read their writings, we discover that in the early church, there was a clear belief in the deity of Christ. It was never an issue. It was never an issue that he was fully man. They just never took those ideas out of the box and said, okay, well, what does that mean and how do they relate to each other? And they didn't. They, they believed in the the deity of uh, the Holy Spirit. They didn't say much about the Holy Spirit, and they they believed in the, so they believed in the deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But nobody was asking them. Well, if you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three distinct personalities, well, don't you have three gods? That question really isn't asked or answered for another 75 years. So it is a what I would call a naive. Uh, belief. It's not structured. It's not analyzed. It's not uh, developed in any way, but it is still there. Now, we have to ask these questions, so I've been going back, reading a number of things in uh, early church history to see how they handled these doctrines and why they saw them as significant because, uh, as I've taught here before and some of you remember when you come to the Council of Nicaea where you have the major battle between a, a, a heretical uh, presbyter from uh, Egypt by the name of Arius and uh, the uh, bishop of that area by the name of Athanasius, that um, Arius taught that, that Christ was a creature that was uh, created by God sometime in eternity past, but there, in his terminology there was a time when Christ was not So Athanasius responds to him in volumes of writings because this battle really went on most of Athanasius' life. It's a great story to tell, and it's a tremendous example of the uh, fortitude and perseverance of one man who took a stand on Scripture. We owe so much in church history to men who stood against the tide of heresy. Men like Athanasius, who uh, at first won a great victory at at Nicaea, and the the Nicene Creed was written and had a clear articulation of the uh, deity of Christ, that he was equal to God and a very God or true God of true God. But it was only a couple of years before um, Constantine died and his son Constantius took the throne and he was swayed by the Arians. And you have this political for the next uh, 60 years almost, or f- uh, 50 years. And during that time, there are five different occasions when Athanasius is uh, there. At one point, assassins or hitmen are sent after him, and he has to go into the desert for five years to hide out with uh, monks in the desert in order to avoid being assassinated. And But five times between 325 and his death and about 360 Two or 363, five times in that period, he is exiled and has to run for his life, hide for his life, but he always comes back and he never gives up. And finally, most people, see, during that period, like in most church, most theological squabbles, it's 98% of the people don't understand what the issues are and uh, only about 2% do, and 1% percent's on one side, and 1% percent's on the other side, and the other 98% are, sw- are in the middle, and they're swayed by emotion. No, I'm talking about theology, not politics. Don't get confused. Well, that's how it is in, in almost everything in life. 98% of the people don't have a clue, and they're swayed by personalities, and they're swayed by emotion, they're swayed by all kinds of factors, and you always have a number of people who just don't want a controversy. Let's let everything be true. And then everybody can be happy. So Athanasius stood his ground, even though at times he was almost alone taking a stand against uh, Arianism. Same thing happens in the Reformation with Martin Luther. It happens again with Calvin. And these men had the uh, courage of doctrine to take a stand, and it is because of what they did, despite the fact that at some point, or at many points, they had very confused theology. But at critical issues in the stage of church history, they took a stand on what was the battlefield for that generation. And even though they they might have been confused on other points of doctrine, those other points weren't where the battle was. And they took their stand where the battle was uh, and uh, held the ground, and it is due to their uh, tenacity and their courage that we have such a great understanding of the truth, but if you want to understand, now some of you I know like to read on cults and like to study a little bit and you always decide that you need to learn a few things when you hear the doorbell ring, you look out the window and there are those two people standing on your doorstep with their uh, literature, whether it's uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or whomever. And if you want to understand some of the issues related to to the Jehovah's Witnesses, you go back and you read the voluminous writings of Athanasius because Jehovah's Witness is just a modern version of Arianism, that there, that Jesus Christ is not eternally God, that there's a time when he is created or born or something of that nature, and so he is less than God or he is a second God. And uh, that has tremendous implications uh, for theology, these are the point i 'm making is these are not just little abstract concepts that uh, theologians uh, argue over. These are not just complicated ideas that 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 's nice but let 's get to the practical stuff. These are the practical they have tremendous implications for how you understand not only our salvation but also our spiritual life so we 're going to be probing into these and in uh, many different ways, give you a little more of an education on uh, some church history as we go through this to try to uh, help you come to grips with why this is so so significant and why the Holy Spirit has given us not only First John but also Second John and Third John and why it is that these same ideas seem to be repeated again and again and again. Now, as John addresses this congregation, one of the things that I touched on last time And that we see from this is the importance of the local church. This is a truth that somehow gets shaded. We emphasize the importance of doctrine, that it is by a study of doctrine, by the knowledge, uh, by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that believers grow spiritually. And we grow spiritually by studying the Word. And if you're in an area, part of the country, town, where where there is no pastor who is uh, teaching the word or if you happen to be in an area where the only churches around are either uh, caught up in some sort of ritual on the one hand or on the other hand they're steeped in lordship salvation or some kind of work salvation, then it is extremely difficult and there are some areas of the country and some regions of the country where it's virtually impossible to get uh, any kind of clear teaching from the word and it is only as a result of teaching the word and i'm not talking about preaching the word because preaching often is directed towards application and you go from the text to the application and people don't know how you got there and so they they're not taught how to think and yet The the teaching of the Word is how we learn how to think, and it is thinking that is crucial to the spiritual life. We are to renew our thinking, Romans 12.2 says. We're not to be conformed to the world, to cosmic thought forms, but be renewed in our thinking. We're to have the thought of Christ in us. So we have to learn how to think as Christ thinks. And the only way to do that is to have a pastor teacher who is going to teach us how to think and interact with the issues of life. Nevertheless, God did not institute individuals when he instituted this age. It is an age that is built around a corporate identity called the local church. And too often, sometimes, we find people who have lost the importance of the local church and the community of the local church. So point number one, I want to give a few points on the importance of the local church. Point number one, God created man for community, for relationship, not to live in isolation. No man is an island. We go back to Genesis chapter 2 for this. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. Now the immediate interpretation of that is marriage. But the implication of that is that man is a social creature. He is designed for relationship. That's part of what it means to be in the image of God, is to have relationship. As we'll see in our study this morning, this is what is inherent in key concepts in understanding God, such as love and truth, both of which are emphasized in this first verse. So God created man for community not to live in isolation. There's no such thing as going it alone in the Christian life. That is abnormal. There are cases when that happens, and that has to happen, but it is not to be considered normative. So when I'm emphasizing these things, it's not that I don't recognize that there are certain exceptions, but you never build principle. This is a principle in itself. You never build principle on the basis of exceptions. You never build principles On the basis of exception, you build principles on the basis of absolutes, and then when you find abnormal circumstances, then you recognize that there are certain exceptions, but the exceptions must be understood to be abnormal and not what is to be expected. For example, I'll apply this to something we saw recently, and that is in terms of ordination. We emphasize the training of a pastor back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. Pastors should, a pastor should know the original languages. They should be trained in Greek and Hebrew and exegesis. And my opinion is that no one should be ordained unless they have those skills. However, you can go along through church history and you can point to people like uh, Dr. Louis Berry Chafer who founded Dallas Seminary and say, well, he didn't know Greek or Hebrew. Well sure, he's an exception, but you don't build your principle on exception. If you did, then you'd be saying, well, it's not necessary to have Greek and Hebrew. See, if you say it's necessary to have Greek and Hebrew, you have a high standard, and you recognize the reality that not everybody in every situation can meet that standard, and so if there are unusual circumstances, you can, you can be flexible. But, Uh, If you start start with the lower standard, then you lose the high standard. And the high standard is that believers are designed to function in the body of Christ in a local church. Point number two, just as God called out a corporate body for himself in the Old Testament in the nation Israel, God called out a corporate body for himself in the New Testament. He called out a group in the Old Testament. He called out Israel... There is emphasis throughout the Psalms on corporate worship, not just individual worship, but on believers coming together as a corporate body to worship God. And it is that corporate witness that is also significant in the angelic conflict, not just going it alone. Did they have to go it alone? Sure, think about it. You can't get involved in corporate worship down in in Jerusalem if you live up in Galilee. It was, it's physically difficult if you have to ride a mule or walk all the way down to Jerusalem. That's 70 or 80 miles. And so you can't go down there every Sabbath. But in the law there was the clear recognition that there were three, particularly three feast days in the Jewish calendar when every adult Jewish male was expected to go to Jerusalem for that corporate worship. So throughout Scripture, there is this emphasis on a corporate body. In the New Testament, the corporate body is the church. It is the church as a whole, not just the church body as a whole, but the individual local church is called out. And even in this context where you have an absentee pastor He is addressing a corporate body of believers. He's not addressing to all the individual believers living in this area. It is addressed to the church. And so there is an emphasis here on the importance of a corporate body. Now, why is that significant, we need to ask. Well, that's the third point. The church is not simply a universal organism or spiritual organism of all believers united to Christ. That's what we mean by the universal church. That is, all believers in the church age from the day of Pentecost to the rapture are all members of the body of Christ. That's the universal church. And each individual church, whether it's Preston City Bible Church or North Stonington Bible Church or First Baptist Church or our Second Baptist Church or whatever it might be, Those are local church assemblies, and God called and authorized local church assemblies not simply as a place to learn doctrine. It's not simply a classroom. The church, if you look at the description and function of a local church in the New Testament, it's not like a college classroom. Sure, that is an important and key element of it. But it is more than just hearing a lecture or hearing a Bible class taught on the Scripture. It is a place where believers function in the area of their royal priesthood and spiritual gifts. So that takes us to point number four. Point number four is going to deal deals with the problem of human viewpoint and cultural baggage. In the United States, we have a cultural heritage of independence. We are self-reliant. We can do it on our own. We can go it alone. We believe in self-sufficiency. However, though that has many good aspects to it, that is not the approach that you see in the Scriptures to the Christian life. The Christian life the normal christian life as approached in the new testament is never viewed as individuals it's viewed as members of the corporate body of christ there is this emphasis on the unity there's emphasis on the individuals but there's also in emphasis on on the unity and the mutuality of ministry in the body of christ so isolation in the body of christ is never viewed as something that is normal or desirable. It's always viewed as a second-class, third-class situation that needs to be rectified in some way, if at all possible. Now, what's happened in in our country, because we have this cultural background of uh, independence, I can just go it alone, we have people who think that they can live the spiritual life And they can grow to spiritual maturity by sitting around a tape recorder, television, radio, internet, whatever it might be. And that's all they need. But yet that is viewed in the Bible as an extremely abnormal situation because it misses out several key elements. And that's point number five. In isolation, we have several elements that are missing. First of all, there's no opportunity for the Lord's table. There's no opportunity for the Lord's table. Every now and then I'll, I'll run into tapers uh, here or there, and I'll say, well, when was the last time you had the Lord's table? Oh, let me see, three or four years ago I was at such and such a church, and I guess that was the last time I had the Lord's table. Well, that's abnormal in the Christian life. This is something that is supposed to be regular in the Christian life, is to go, to, and, and go through communion, and it is a corporate uh, worship time it's called it was called in the in the early church a love feast It's a time for the corporate body to get together and reflect on what they have in common in their salvation. It has an individual focus, but it has a corporate focus. Second problem is you don't have opportunity to train children in education now I recognize that um, there are certainly situations and exceptions where people living out in, in isolation or living someplace where there just isn't anything that you can even even uh, stomach in terms of uh, local churches, and the parents get excess, ex, exceptionally involved with their children and training them and teaching them at home, and they're very successful, but that is an abnormal circumstance. A local church needs to be in existence in order to provide a well-run education system for children. Third element that is missing and we live in isolation is that there's no opportunity for the function of spiritual gifts. Now you have certain spiritual gifts such as pastor teacher that are uh, designed one, where you have one person ministering in a in a more visible way to the congregation. But remember the function the definition of a spiritual gift is that these are Special abilities given to every believer for the purpose of ministering, serving, relating to, uh, edifying other believers. You know, if you have a spiritual gift of administration, that is not fulfilled by the fact that you happen to be a business manager in your career. That has nothing to do with the spiritual gift of administration. Spiritual gift of administration is only going to function if you get involved in leadership at a local church, and so what happens if you have spiritual gift of of uh, leadership, spiritual gift of service, spiritual gift of mercy, and you 're not involved in a local church then that is not it 's not limiting your spiritual life and the fact that you can 't grow because you don 't grow by using your spiritual gifts but using your spiritual gifts is a responsibility of your royal priesthood and so as God has mandated these responsibilities for every believer you're basically cutting your yourself short in the sense that you are cutting out the opportunities to minister in ways that God has designed you for as a royal priest therefore if you're not in a local church you're not functioning in the area of your spiritual gifts and therefore you are uh, in violation of the basic function of your spirit of, of your royal priesthood fourth point going it alone limits the obedi- obedience to the one another passages that we're to pray for one another we 're to admonish one another we are to teach one another we are to serve one another. these are all passages that emphasize the mutual ministry in a local church if you are an isolationist and you uh, and you just want to stay by yourself and go to work and listen to a tape recorder, then you are not going to have uh, the benefits and the blessing that comes from serving the Lord in the arena of of mutual ministry. So for these reasons, we are to function in a local church. Now, again, I want to recognize that there are, there are exceptions, but I have occasion... Every now and then to, to interact with some people who are on tapes and I listen to them and their complaints about how they can't find anybody in their area teaches the word. But in almost every case, I, they are, they try to get involved in some local church. They, they'll meet with pastors, they'll go to a local church, find some place that they can be somewhat comfortable and then it gives them an opportunity to get involved in some sort of ministry. And it's amazing the impact ...that they can have in one local church. They may be getting 99.9% of their doctrine off the Internet or from a tape recorder or from reading literature and getting .001% from the local pastor... But when they're in that church and they develop a relationship with that pastor, they develop two or three relationships in church, they give those people tapes, and before you know it, they're beginning to have an impact in that local congregation. Now if you think, oh well there's nothing they can give me, what's that? That's pure self-absorbed arrogance. You don't go to a church necessarily for what you're going to get out of it. Now, I'm not saying that's not important. The primary thing we should be concerned with when we pick a local church is a pastor who faithfully studies and teaches the Word of God. That is his primary task is to study and teach the Word of God. That is how he demonstrates his love for his congregation. But... There are many cases where you can't do that, and there's also a second aspect in a local church, and that has to do with uh, executing that mutual ministry. Now, John says in First in Second John one one, the the elder to the elect lady, and her children, whom I love in truth. And a corrected translation that should read, whom I love by means of the truth. It is the Greek preposition in. Plus the dative of the word, the Greek word for truth, aletheia. Let me see if I have a. I think that looks a little better, A L E T H E I A, aletheia, and this is the basic Greek word for truth. But I want to caution you, John is not using this with a Greek meaning of truth. And this is something that we have to spend a good bit of time understanding in the next couple of weeks. It is not the Greek concept of truth. You see, the Greek concept of truth is derived on the basis of the philosophical thought that had developed in Greek from the pre-Socratics to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle and in greek thought truth is an abstract is abstract knowledge truth is that which exists independently of any god or any creator or any person truth just hangs out there it's impersonal that is not the biblical concept of truth before we get there though we have to look at a couple of other things in this passage john says whom i love In truth, in plus the dative indicates means, so it should be translated whom I love by means of truth. He loves them by means of truth. Love is not juxtaposed to truth. It's not in contrast to truth. Love works together with truth. John, like any pastor teacher, loves his congregation. But he demonstrates that love in the context and by means of truth. This means that the highest expression of love of the pastor teacher for his congregation is teaching the word. A pastor doesn 't show his his love for the congregation by going down to the hospital, holding their hand when they 're in the hospital he doesn 't show his love for the congregation by going around and and visiting them in their home every now and then and seeing how they 're doing, and all of these social feel good things that are typical of most churches but have nothing to do with the biblical priorities for a pastor. See, all of that takes time. And if you are a pastor and you're teaching three or four times a week, and you are honest with the text, you're going to spend probably a minimum of 35 or 40 hours just studying the Word. And there's always just a host of other things that come along that no matter how much you want to focus on just teaching or limit yourself to teaching, there are always a hundred other interruptions and other responsibilities and things that come along. But a pastor demonstrates his love by teaching the Word. This was made clear to the Apostle John when he was a young man one at one particular breakfast meeting after the resurrection when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the disciples in John 21. John twenty one he, they finished breakfast and Jesus looked at Peter, and uh, Jesus said Simon son of John do you love me more than these. And Peter said to him yes Lord you know that I love you, and Jesus said tend my lambs now there he's using the word, uh, Jesus said do you love me more than these Phileo. and that had to do with with um, Peter's. Peter's appreciation, love, and intimate love for the Lord. And Jesus said, Tend my lambs. John 21, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That is, here he uses agape. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Shepherd my sheep, or feed my sheep. In John 21:17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Tend my sheep. In other words, to demonstrate that you love God, we saw this first hour. To know that you love God, you keep His commandments. If you love the Lord and you're a pastor, you keep His commandment, which is what? Which is to feed the sheep. He doesn't say visit them at the home. He doesn't say go to the hospital. He doesn't say you know make sure that you are a hail fellow well met, that you're you're sociable and and you have a great social life with the folks in your congregation. He says, feed your sheep. That's the only thing that's required of a pastor. He doesn't have to fit a certain personality profile. He doesn't have to, to function a certain way. And everybody seems like they've been in church for very long. They've been with one particular pastor for very, very long. And then they go to some other church. They want this other pastor to be like their former pastor. And they're confusing personality with the responsibilities of the office. And the responsibility of the office is to feed the sheep. In order to feed the sheep, you have to study sheep and you have to study nutrition and all of those other things, and that means you have to spend your time in the Word of God again and again and again, day in and day out, uh, studying all kinds of different things related to doctrine. You have to not only study exegesis and grammar and constantly developing yourself in the areas of your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, but also reading theology, uh, keeping up with things that are going on today because whenever you address a congregation such as this, there's probably four or five, six of you and I don't know how many people out there who are listening on tapes who have very little background with a doctrinal teaching ministry. And uh, you haven't learned a whole lot in your life related to the Word of God. And so there has to be this introduction, this information to you. But you probably come out of a background where you were taught a lot of really crazy things about Christianity. Or you just picked up a lot of uh, misinformation about Christianity. And if I don't know the kinds of things that are going on, for example, there may be some people listening to me who have spent years in a charismatic or health and wealth gospel background. And I have to be somewhat familiar with health and wealth stuff so that when we get to a passage such as uh, as we will in Third John, uh, 3 John, verse 2, where John says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers, that if I'm not studying the x acts, and spasms of our generation, then I'm not going to know that that is the key verse that all the health and wealth, prosperity gospel guys teach. And if I get to that verse and I don't teach it in such a way that I can explain that in the context of uh, the health and wealth gospel being taught today and teach that in a way that that helps people coming out of that background can see why it doesn't mean what they thought it meant, then I'm failing as a pastor. So pastors have to keep up not only with what's going on today, but all the Greek and Hebrew, read theology, read church history, uh, read all manner of different things related to the study of the Scriptures because it helps them think, gives them new ideas, challenges them to to a greater understanding of the Word so that they can, can mature and grow in their own life because a congregation is not going to grow beyond the level, the maturity, the understanding of their pastor. So it's important for a pastor to spend time doing that, and that is how he is expressing his love for the congregation. And notice again that when John says I love them by means of the truth, we recognize that love here is not some autonomous abstract concept, but it is love that is related to truth, that is revealed truth. John 3:16, 1st uh, John 3:16 states we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, Love isn't some abstract concept. You don't sit there and think, okay, this is what love is, and then God fits that idea. God is the one who tells us what love is and how we can understand it. And he says, you don't know a thing about love unless you start at the cross. That's your starting point, not how you feel, not the, the butterflies you get when you fell in love when you were 16 years old. Uh, that has nothing to do with what God says when he talks about love. So that means we have to... Let the Bible define what we mean by what right is and what wrong is. We have to let the Bible define what truth is and what love is. So we look at this verse, and we have to take an extended study in the biblical view of truth. So we'll just barely get started this this morning. And we're answering the question, what is truth? This is what Pilate asked Jesus when he Pilate had said, you know, the people claim that you're the Son of God, and Jesus said, you've spoken spoken truly. Pilate said, what is truth? See, that's the question that our skeptical, agnostic generation asks: is, is what is truth? Last week, I watched um, uh, Jerry Falwell was a guest of uh, Phil Donahue's, and uh, Phil Donahue's talking about. Well, I don't I, I don't really know anything for sure. I'm just an agnostic, and went on to say. being an agnostic is the best position because you can't be sure of anything. And Fallwell just missed that great opening. He said, if you can't be sure of anything, can you be sure of that? No, you just said you can't be sure of anything. That's a universal statement. You just made an absolute statement. You can't be sure of anything. Well... If you can't be sure of anything, can you be sure of that? Well, if you can be sure of that, then we know one thing you can be sure of. Maybe there are other things that you can be sure of. And, he, you know, instead of pointing out the fact that his whole position was built on illogic, you know, he, it just went right past Fallwell, who's usually usually pretty sharp. That's why you have to understand some things about apologetics is just so you can uh, nail people when they make statements like that, that they can't be consistent. The unbeliever... Can't be consistent with his own position. If you let them get away with that, then you're answering a fool according to his folly. You're giving credence to their own, their own inadequate position. So we have to ask the question, what is truth? And we start with, with the scriptures. Now the interesting thing that, that I discovered this last week, because I've never taken the time to do a word study in the Old Testament on this before, but in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word uh, looks like this. E M E T. And we start off with like an apostrophe up here, but that is how you transliterate that, that first letter there, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, an aleph. It's not a vowel. It is this sort of a soft uh guttural uh aleph that you have at the beginning of a uh. So it's emmet. Now emmet is a noun form that derives from a verb. And the verb here is this verb, and you can see that the first two letters are the same, and this is translated like this. You have that apostrophe for the Aleph, and then Amen. Now, Amen is the verb normally translated to believe, although it has a wider range of meaning than that. So the noun for truth, Emmet, is derived from the verb meaning to believe. But underneath this, you have an even more, an even more basic concept that derives from these, the function of these two consonants, the Aleph and the Mame, and the core meaning of the word that you have both as faith, both as believe, and truth, is the idea of stability, And certainty, the idea of immovability. For example, a noun, a related noun form, the noun plural Amunah, which looks like this. I'm just showing this to you to give you a little example. Uh, Amunah, A M U N E H. See, uh, Hebrews a Consonantal language. The vowel points were added le- later. So you have these three letters. They, those are the same letters you have here. So you can see that the words are are related. They're, that's what's called a cognate. They're they're related to one another. And this word Amuna is used in Second Kings eight sixteen, which we have up on the Second Kings eight eighteen sixteen. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. Now, the word doorpost is this word amuna, a doorpost. This was that which provided stability and anchored the entire temple building. So you see the core idea here is that which provides stability, that which provides certainty, that which provides a solid anchor. So, the idea under belief you believe something that is true, and truth is something which is certain, something which is uh, faithful it, uh, the the noun emet has the idea of also of truth, faithfulness, and certainty and what this tells us is that for the for the Hebrews, the idea of truth is the idea of something that is objective and real, and because of that, it is certain and it is dependable. And that leads us to the idea, this idea of certainty and dependability, leads us to the idea that for them, the very notion of truth itself was that of an absolute. It was something that's related to a universal. It was something that's true for everybody in every situation at all ages. It never changes. It doesn't matter whether you are a uh, Russian, whether you are uh, an aborigine in Africa, whether you are a Western European, or an Australian, an American, it doesn't matter. Truth is not related to culture. Truth is not related to experience. Truth is not related to to uh, emotion. Truth is something that is above all human human experience. It is an absolute. So, point number one simply looks at the vocabulary and met, and met is something which is. Which is related to stability and certainty. It has objective reality and it is universal. Point number two then is that in the Old Testament truth is always related to the character of God so that the starting point, the starting point for truth is God, not man. The starting point for truth is God and not man. And that leads to the third point, which is as far as we're going to get this morning, but it's an extensive point. And that is to look at the way the word is used and compound with other words in the Old Testament. And over twenty four times the word is used with another key word in the Old Testament, and that is the word the Hebrew word chesed, which is translated a number of different ways. C H E S E D and it's probably translated in your Bible, loving kindness, more than any other way. But it is sometimes translated grace, sometimes mercy, sometimes it's, it's translated loving kindness, faithful, loyal love. Uh, it's translated a number of ideas. It is not the normal Hebrew word for love. It is a much more pregnant concept, and it has all of these ideas to a faithfulness, loyalty, grace, mercy. Uh, it is a love that is not based on the behavior of other people. It's not a personal love. It is a love that is there whether the object is attractive or unattractive. Now, it is used in some phrases where men talk to men about their behavior and says, well, deal with me in loving kindness and chesed and in truth. So this combination of chesed, loving kindness plus truth Suggests by the context it's used in human relationships, it suggests the idea that this may be a an idiom for integrity. And this is clear from how it is applied to God, which of course is always our starting point for how we understand anything. It's used this way, and first time the word occurs in the Scripture is in Genesis twenty-four twenty-seven. And this is in the context of uh, finding a wife for Isaac. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness, his chesed, and his truth toward my master. Another example is, is Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Second Samuel 2.6 states, And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you. Psalm 40, verse 10, I have not hidden thy righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Psalm 40.11, Thou, O Lord, will not withhold thy compassion from me. Thy loving kindness and thy truth will continually preserve me. Another example is Psalm 8510. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 8615. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And Psalm 8914. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. So again and again, I've just touched the surface over 20 times, the phrase loving kindness and truth is applied to god in the old testament so when you take this along with the fact that it is frequently these these two attributes are also frequently associated as they are in psalm 89:14 with righteousness and justice we see that these four attributes together form what we call the integrity of God. See, this is how you get to a concept like the integrity of God is you don't just start off and say, Well, God has integrity, go to the dictionary, find out what integrity means, and then go find something that relates. You start with the scriptures, you look at attributes that the scripture ties together because integrity it has that concept of wholeness. It has that idea of unity, but it's going to connect certain things together that normally we don't connect together. And you always hear the liberals say, well, how can a righteous God send his loving creatures to hell? See, somebody on the Phil, that Phil Donahue show raised that question. I was just waiting and hoping that Falwell would come back and say, well, how can a righteous God let a sinner into heaven? He came close. He came close. He, didn't, he wasn't quite that precise, but he came close. He, he simply mentioned the fact that a righteous God couldn't let sinners into heaven. But you've got to throw, let them answer the question that they can't answer the question on their own lousy epistemological, their relative epistemological system, that they want us to answer these questions, but they don't have an answer at all, and they think that, oh, I've got you now because I've got a question. Well, you can't answer it at all, and I do have an answer. So God is, has integrity because the Scriptures join these things together again and again and again. And what this, for a conclusion here for this morning, what we learn from this is that truth in the Old Testament is related to a person. It's related to grace and love. It is not abstract. It is in a person, and it's related to love. And that is that changes your whole view of, uh, should change your whole view of what truth is. Truth is uh, related to something that is personal, and it's related to love. In contrast, in Islam, truth is what Allah says, not what Allah is. In Christianity, truth is what God is and what Jesus Christ is. And Jesus Christ came to reveal truth because he said, I am the truth, And there is a difference between a God in a religious system that has truth separate from that God and God in the Bible who is truth in and of itself. And it changes it from an impersonal mechanistic universe, which is what you have in everything ultimately other than Christianity, to a personal universe where truth is something that is grounded in truth and grounded in a God who loves his creatures. Well, next time we'll come back, we'll finish up some other points on uh, truth in the Old Testament and then truth in the New Testament. And then we'll put that together before we proceed in understanding the importance of this in 2 John with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We uh, pray that you would help us to apply these things in our own lives. We pray that you would help us to see the importance of uh, truth as a personal something that is personally uh, related to you, something that comes from you and from your character and is related to the concepts of of, uh, your unconditional love. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that both sure and certain. That salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone, not based on works, not based on what we've done or what we haven't done, but it's based exclusively on what you have done for us. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, and you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied related to truth. You would help us to put those things together with other doctrines that we may see how they apply to our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.